Welcome to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. In this program, we take a fresh look at some of today's challenges from the economy, education, politics, security, defense, and much more. You'll be prompted to see and think about things just a bit differently. Now, here are your hosts, Ambassador Harry Thomas and Chief Alex Morales. Welcome to The Spotlight. Where are your hosts? Ambassador Retired Harry Thomas Jr. And I am Alex Morales, the Chief. Harry, who do we have today? Today we have my personal friend and colleague, Jim Willard, a retired diplomat who served the United States of America for over 30 years in many locales, but we're going to concentrate on his work in combating narcotics and keeping America safe. Jim, great to have you as our guest. Please tell us about Jim Willard, who you are and how you became uh, a diplomat and also fighting drugs. Thank you. Well, thank you, Harry and, uh, and Alex. Um, I come from an Air Force family. I uh, had a wonderful experience in college of being able to uh, take internships at the Christian Science Monitor in Boston, as well as uh, with Senator Charles H. Percy of, of Illinois in Washington. That uh, sort of whetted my appetite for government service. And uh, I actually, af- after a, a fellowship at the Illinois State Legislature, went to Washington uh, just with the hope and a prayer of getting a job in the, on Capitol Hill, took, uh, took a job to pay bills in the State Department, civil service, and found myself uh, shortly thereafter as a Foreign Service Reserve Officer in the country of Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, My career was a little bit different from perhaps others in that I served in a lot of posts overseas, not so much in Washington, uh, although I did have one one tour in the refugee business in in Washington. I served at 12 different embassies around the world. Uh, my career, I said, was a little bit different in terms of the number of postings and also in terms of uh, where I was stationed. I didn't stay in one specific area. Served in Africa, Middle East, uh, subcontinent, Asia, uh, Latin America, of course. And even after I retired, I found myself for six months uh, on contract with state in, uh, in Spain. And that didn't even end it there. I, I went, joined my wife in, in Manila and worked under a wonderful ambassador for about three months, uh, uh, helping out in the administrative field. And that was, uh, of course, Harry Thomas. Uh, how I got into drugs, I, I, did, I didn't stay in a particular discipline. I was brought into the Foreign Service as an uh, administrative officer, now called the management officer. Uh, but I decided that I wanted a varied career, so I became a refugee officer handling Vietnamese, Laos, and Cambodians in the, in the Philippines and in Washington. Um, I also I went from there, I was a consular officer for a brief period of time, and I also went to, uh, to Peru as a management officer, but I saw that where the action really was in Peru and I, and I was always attracted to the largest programs and the most money and the, the most difficult challenges, and that was the narcotics program. And I, therefore, bid on a, a requested a position uh, as the director of the narcotics uh, section, which is the State Department uh, position in Peru. 
and served in that for two and a half years before moving on to deputy chief of mission positions where I also had uh, a relationship with the drug uh, uh, agencies and uh, and and I was even an economics officer of all things. <laughs> so it, it was a varied career. It was a wonderful career. Uh, I enjoyed Thank it. Miss it. Thank you for enlightening us on your career. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Jim, do you think do you think it was a mistake the way the war on drugs was executed, sir? Well, uh, the war on drugs is a, a phrase that was uh, used by President Nixon. And it uh, came at a time when there was a lot of violence uh, in the inner cities, a lot of uh, drug use, a lot of drug use in the uh, um, demonstrations, anti-Vietnam. And uh, I think if you listen to some of the quotes from his advisors at the time, like John Ehrlichman, uh, he used it as political, uh, the fear, and in so doing, concentrated on law enforcement uh, almost exclusively. And in that sense, as, as we look back on it, uh, yeah, I, th I think there was an overemphasis, which led to some very difficult things uh, later on in, the, uh, in our government, such as the crime bill that made uh, crack cocaine something equivalent at five grams to uh, powdered cocaine at 500 grams. And it, it uh, was, there was a disparity there. Um, I'm sorry to say, I think there was some racial under, a lot of racial uh, undertones there as well, but it was politics of fear. And I, I understand, and I think it's easy to go back and, and look uh, historically at these things and say uh, it was wrong, but I think you also have to put your mind in the times. And there, there, there really was a, a, a fear among a lot of people that there was a great deal of violence and crime, and it was tied to drugs, and there was an overemphasis there. And uh, that worked itself out uh, over time, I think, uh, to the time when I was in the, uh, the anti-narcotics business. We really weren't talking so much about a war on drugs. Uh, that phrase I didn't use, and most of the people that I worked with didn't use. We were... And, I, you know, interrupt me if I'm talking too long here, but uh, no, this no, go is ahead. a subject close to my heart. But uh, we were working off of General McCaffrey's, uh, who was the drug czar at the time when I was uh, in Peru. And he looked at drugs as being uh, fighting drugs as, as like fighting a cancer, which required steady, consistent pressure and a surge of activity when it would, uh, uh, when there would be a, a dramatic rise in, in it. But we didn't treat it as a war. We didn't send in troops. We didn't uh, go to uh, act like a, a law enforcement agency from the State Department's point of view. We didn't go after the, the cocoa growers uh, in a violent way. In fact, it was just the opposite of that. So, and Bringing it up to today, I think you find uh, a much greater emphasis now on treating addiction as a disease, treating drug, uh, let's say they call it uh, substance use disorder rather than drug abuse now. Uh, and I think it's, it's a recognition 
that uh, it's uh, much more of a health problem than than a military or even a a strong law enforcement issue. The law enforcement certainly has its its place still. So, yes, I think we we probably got off to the wrong start by overemphasizing the law aspect of it, the the law enforcement aspect of it. But I think as time moved on, we worked ourselves to a, a better place now. Okay, great. Thank you, Jim. What do you think about the new law in Oregon decriminalizing drug use and making it a medical problem? I think the new law in Oregon, as much as I understand it, and I, I didn't follow all of the debate for it because I'm living in Florida now, but uh, it, it, fall, it, it falls in line with the evolving idea, not only on, on the state level, but on the national and international level, that, uh, we, that we must turn from incarceration towards other forms of uh, dealing with the problem. In 2016, the UN had a special session on drugs, and that's exactly what they recommended to countries, that, that uh, countries turn away from the incarceration uh, uh, path and uh, look more at fair sentencing, uh, but to look at uh, prevention, to look at treatment, and, uh, and the limitation on supplies of, of drugs to countries. So I, I, I'd like to say that, yes, the Oregon uh, approach is a good one, but it isn't, hasn't been detailed yet. They're still working on fleshing it out and finding out exactly what it means. There are a lot of questions that are involved. And I have some concerns. Uh, the, uh, the prosecutors who uh, were against passing the law, which, by the way, passed by something like 58 60% uh, of the vote, uh, were concerned that this tended to make drugs more, quote, acceptable. And I don't think, and we're talking about hard drugs now, Correct. I don't think uh, we want to go that direction. And that, that's one of my concerns, is, is that it's, if it's more available, then it makes it uh, more difficult for young people who make mistakes. It makes it more difficult for people who are in treatment and are trying to get it off, get off of uh, the drugs. And it's, uh, it might tempt people who would not otherwise try uh, hard drugs to do so if they felt that there was no sanction. The sanction, of course, is uh, in the Oregon law, is a good one, is that the people will attend drug centers and get the help they need, whether that be counseling, whether that be uh, using uh, replacement drugs or being in peer groups, or these are, these are all good things. But my second concern here is that it appears from what I've read in the newspaper, I, don't, I haven't studied the law, but from the newspaper, that it, these drug centers are to be uh, paid for by taxes on marijuana, which would be legal. Uh, that causes me uh, to pause because what I've been reading and seeing is that uh, there are people who are evading taxes by growing marijuana anyway illegally. There are towns that won't allow uh, the sale of marijuana uh, to, to start in their towns. In other words, the money might not be there for these drug centers. 
And if, it, if they're not there and if the drugs are more available in the sense that they are not considered to be uh, in the sense that they are decriminalized, then we could have a bigger problem. But on balance, I would say that the, the Oregon law is, is moving in the correct direction. There are a lot of other states that are considering this kind of approach. Uh, clearly, the incarceration uh, manner of handling hard drugs has not worked well. It has resulted in a huge number of Americans going to jail, very disproportionate number of them being uh, minorities, particularly African-Americans. Um, what incarceration does, does not solve the problem. It doesn't get them out of uh, substance uh, disorders, breaks up their families, messes up their chances for jobs in the future, and it's just a dead end. So let's try the Oregon approach, but let's be careful. <laughs> well, no, no, that's good. I think uh, in my eyes, I think that what they're trying to do is start treating it as a medical instead of a criminalization. I don't think uh, they want to go to like, the freedom, but hopefully, like you said, you got the experience about that. Let's try to approach it in a different way. Uh, it, it's a good segue to talk about what it, based on your experience, I mean, this has been your lifetime. So how can we decrease the demand? Because if we didn't have a demand, we shouldn't have a problem, right? So how can we decrease, in, how can we decrease the demand on, for drugs in the United States? If it's, this is possible, I don't know if it is, but what do you think? Well, just say no is probably the answer, but it, it, that was, Reagan <laughs> got ridiculed quite a bit for that one. Uh, but that's probably the only real silver bullet. No, uh, to decrease the demand, uh, I think heavy reliance on education, particularly for young people uh, who do not quite grasp the danger, particularly of the synthetic drugs that are out there now, the fentanyl. This is deadly. This is, this is anywhere from 50 to 100 times as potent as heroin. Oh, wow. And what the bad guys are doing is developing their clientele by getting fentanyl and mixing it with cocaine, with other, other drugs, and, and even drugs that uh, would not be considered particularly party drugs. It wouldn't be considered particularly dangerous. But if it's mixed with fentanyl, you've got a real problem and young people are, are dying as a result. Uh, there's, there's some rather dramatic statistics on that one. Um, so, so education, you also have demand, you've got different populations and, and there's no one size fits all just as there's no silver bullet. Another big population of course, are the veterans, uh, many with PTSD, many with, uh, mental issues, many with physical issues, many with problems simply getting a job and, and readjusting to uh, life in the, in, in the United States, having come back from a combat situation. Um, therefore, uh, a lot of emphasis on improving the services available to our veterans in the veterans hospitals. I think there's some movement in that direction, but it's, uh, uh, there's more work to be done there. Uh, I also, in, in this education, I found some interesting things. When I was in Peru, 
one of the things that we tried to enlighten people about was the damage that uh, drugs do to the environment. I didn't expect that that was going to be a big issue, but we took a plane load. I had, I had lots of planes. I took a plane load of journalists out to the, to the uh, rainforest, showed them how they were burning down the rainforest, and showed them how they make cocaine. We actually had a cocaine lab, our own, and we showed the hydrochloric acid, the sulfuric oh, wow. acid, the kerosene, the uh, manganese and potassium, the, the acetone. And it really startled people to see this stuff going into the watersheds in, in the uh, rainforest. And there were, for many days, there were a lot of articles in the Peruvian press about it. I, I don't think many of our folks in schools, I don't, I've been out of school for a while, but I don't know that that, that issue has been brought to their attention, that when they're buying drugs, they're hurting the environment. When they're buying drugs, they are fueling uh, the gangs in Honduras, in El Salvador. That's where the money comes from. They use that money to terrorize their communities. And guess what happens? People immigrate to the United States illegally. Uh, so there are a lot of issues. Uh, th- there's a lot that can be taught here in, in education that I think would strike a lot of people. So uh, the education, the uh, dealing with the veterans, um, and reducing supply. Reducing supply has always been the other leg of this. It, it used to be, at one point, it was sort of the major aspect, go in and stop the drugs. But uh, managing that better, and I think we can do that, reducing the amount that's on the street by going after not the, 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 the person with a small amount in possession, but going after the kingpins and going after uh, the transportation nodes and going after the, uh, the chemicals that are making it. We can do a lot, and I think a lot is being done right now uh, to, to interdict uh, there was just a, I just read something this morning about the interdiction of 3,000 pounds of methamphetamine on the Mexican border, which is the second largest haul that uh, it's, uh, the U.S. has made. Uh, it, wow. it has its role, and as long as it's it's done uh, at the forefront of uh, of the approach, then um, I, that hopefully would help reduce demand as well. It's just not available. And with reducing demand, we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device. 
including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Tune in every week for Making Action Happen, hosted by Sarah Blackhurst. The program takes you inside Action 22, a Colorado-based community outreach organization established in 1999. The show focuses on public policies, both politically driven or not, which have ongoing and immediate impact on the Colorado community and the world. It doesn't matter where you are, you can make action happen. Listen Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and 1 p.m. Mountain Time on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to The Spotlight. Jim, many listeners may not understand the counter-narcotics work you did in Peru and Honduras. Can you provide an overview of your work? Um, in the State Department has the lead in foreign affairs, and as such, even though we are not a, a law enforcement agency per se, uh, the State Department uh, section in uh, an embassy such as Peru has the state uh, pretty much in the lead for coordinating the efforts of the entire program. We have a lot of money. I had a budget of about $160 million, of which a large portion of that was so-called no-year money. It was multi-year. And what my job specifically did was to fund and monitor and sort of design the eradication of coca plants in, in Peru. And we, we eliminated something like 25,000 hectares per year, a hectare being 2.2 acres of, uh, of coca we had a large aviation uh, group. Uh, I had 14 helicopters. I had a, 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 a transport aircraft. And uh, we basically funded a lot of the programs that DEA and the predecessor to DHS and uh, other agencies were running to train police and to, and to uh, move them. Uh, to provide security for our our people in the field and also for the people, the, the indigenous people who were there. Uh, but in a broader aspect, under the direction of the deputy chief of mission, Roberta Jacobson in this case, um, I also coordinated uh, what the program overall program should be. Now, that doesn't mean that I did DEA's work. They did their own. But I would become aware of their work. I'd become aware of the intelligence community's uh, findings. I would be aware of uh, what everyone was doing. And, and we had a, a robust uh, narcotics uh, team. Uh, and I would usually uh, chair that meeting if the, if the deputy chief of mission wasn't doing that. 
and I went so far as to draft my budgets and spread them around and ask for everybody's input because we had to be on one page. This was dangerous work. This was intense work. This was expensive work, and it was meaningful work because it was indeed uh, designed to try to safeguard as best we could the, the United States. Oh, wow. Hey, Jim, uh, just a second. I want to tell our listeners that Deputy Chief of Mission is the number two in a U.S. embassy. The ambassador is the chief of mission, and the deputy is really the deputy ambassador. Thank you. And I'll turn it over to Alex. No, that's incredible. Uh, hey, Jim, this, uh, in the countries that you work with, especially in Central and South America, do you see any similarities or differentiations and the work that you did out there? Well, the work was uh, considerably different in uh, Central America. I was the deputy chief of mission in Honduras, and Honduras, as well as other uh, Central American countries, are transit countries. That's where the drugs go through. Uh, I've just uh, looked at the State Department's uh, uh, annual report, and they say 4% of the drugs from South America make their initial stop in Honduras en route to Mexico and the United States. Wow. I think 4%? that's, well, they say 4%. And I, my comment on that is, I don't think so. When I, <laughs> it's, when I first got, it's, it's much higher than that. Um, I, uh, when I first got to Honduras, I was the, uh, the charge, which means the acting ambassador And one of the first people I went to see was the Cardinal, Cardinal Rodriguez, who later became an advisor in the Vatican. Um, I asked the Cardinal to give me the, the top three issues that Honduras was dealing with. And he said, number one is drugs. Number two is drugs. And number three is drugs. And then he proceeded to tell me, and here's, here's a, a very popular, very renowned person He took a trip to the uh, eastern part of Honduras, and he noted all of the airplanes flying over. And he said, what in the world is this? And his parishioner said, those are drug planes. Do not raise the subject. Well, oh, wow. <laughs> you, don't tell that to, you don't tell that to the cardinal. He goes to the church, and, and he gives a, a sermon about, uh, about drugs. Um, they had to move him that night. They could, he could not stay in the residence that he was Uh, supposed to be in because of the threats that were coming in. It is a, uh, it, 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 it's really overwhelming the amount of drugs that pass through that country. Now, I, I'm told afterwards, after I left, that uh, there was further cooperation on the part of the Honduran uh, 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 government and that there was some progress made. However, I can tell you that the person that I dealt with as the, uh, he was the minister of the presidency, was convicted in New York in 2017 of money laundering and uh, spent three years there. He's now back in the country. Uh, we'll see what happens with his future. The president's brother has been indicted in New York. The current president's brother uh, has been indicted in New York. So there is a real concern about uh, particularly money laundering that's going on and uh, The violence that the gangs uh, are engaged in uh, related to the drug program 
the amount of uh, the flow that goes through, the difficulty in interdicting because they're using these semi-submersible uh, vessels, which are very difficult to, to attract. Back in those days, I recommended to the general, the U.S. general responsible for the area that we put in more ships. I'm glad to see that uh, President Trump has done that. Um, and we called for the use of drones, uh, absolutely necessary because radar and sonar don't pick up this, these, these movements. And we, uh, we certainly were in favor of uh, going after the, the financial business that we suspected was going on. So that, that, that was what was occupying much of my time in, in Honduras uh, as opposed to uh, Peru, where we had these active programs going on uh, with with eradication. And, and I should also, I don't think I mentioned that we work very closely in Peru with the U.S. Uh, Agency for International Development. You don't go in and just take a, a farmer's crops away from them. To do that, that, they're not making much money. They're not, they're not the, the, the narco traffickers. They're making anywhere from 76 cents or 79 cents to $3 per, per uh, a kilo of coca leaf. They're trying to put bread on their table for their kids. And if you go in and destroy those crops without substituting something else, they're going to starve. And if that, uh, so they're going to fight it and the government's not going to cooperate and we're going to lose. So we have to work with the uh, Agency for International Development has done wonderful work in uh, coming up with coffee, coming up with cacao, fruit, whatever, as replacement crops. But it doesn't, it doesn't stop there because these are remote areas where you don't have uh, roads. You don't have, you can't get the, the stuff to market. Don't have to worry about it if it's coca leaf because the traffic, narco traffickers will come get it for you. But uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna do a legitimate business, you've got to have an infrastructure. That means you have to have the presence of the government. You have to have the presence of banks. You have to have a community, and that's not going to happen as long as these are cocoa farmers are running these areas. Um, they are condemned. They're really condemned to a life of poverty as long as they continue with their coca crops. But you have to educate them to that. You got to come up with the substitute. And you got to have the infrastructure to make it work. And it does work. We've seen that happen in the Monzon Valley where we were eradicating. Uh, since, since 2011 until now, 90% of the area that was eradicated is not being uh, used for coca growth in, in that Monzon area. But there are other vast tracts that are. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that's the challenge for today is, is, is these other vast tracts, which the Peruvian government has agreed we could go into now in 2019. But we have a little thing called COVID and we have uh, trouble with the, uh, the presidency in Peru. They've had three presidents in the last four weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so Jim. Oh, long answer. <laughs> that's okay. It's helpful. We're learning a lot. You're educating our listeners. Um, and in that vein, please tell them, why is the counter-narcotics work that you did during your career important not only to Americans, but the global community? Well, if you can eradicate 25,000 hectares, you've just stopped the potential of 200 metric tons of cocaine from coming into this country. 
a lot of times the question is asked, well, the, the program can't be working because there's still a lot of drugs around. How many drugs would be around if we weren't eradicating uh, is the question. Also, uh, so, but we still have about 70,000 people uh, dying each year as, as a result of drug overdoses. So there's, there's still much more work to do. But that work um, in the eradication, um, I, I, maybe because I'm a foreign service officer, but I think that creating uh, a more stable condition uh, and economy in a place like Peru does benefit the United States in that it creates, should create stability and counter some of the effects of groups like the Sendero Luminoso, Shining Path, rebels who control and still control uh, major portions of that country um, in the southern part. In fact, that's, that's where we were not allowed to eradicate coca because it was considered to be too dangerous. But it has just opened up, so uh, we can move in that area. Um, that's, but I, I think it, one of the things uh, that, I, the, that I will add is this. perhaps if we find a way to decrease the demand in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, maybe the drug problem will decrease. I don't know. I might be naive, but if there's no demand, you know, if there's nobody buying the product, uh, I don't think they would have that problem. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I, I think our policy uh, of today is prevention first, uh, treatment and recovery second, and third uh, is uh, reducing the amount of uh, drugs coming into the country. That's, you need all three. I'm glad to see that the emphasis is on prevention uh, and, and treatment. And there are a lot of things that can be done. W- one of the th- uh, you, you may have noticed just a, a few days ago, the uh, uh, Purdue Pharma pleaded yes. to what it had been doing. You know, in the last two decades, something like 470,000 Americans have overdosed on opioids and That's a lot criminal. of those opioids came from pharmaceuticals that paid doctors to overprescribe that got a hold of information about uh, potential patients and lobbied them to, to buy this stuff. And you have friends, neighbors, and kids. Once there is an, a, an over uh, prescription of these things available in people's houses, they use it. And these things are terribly addicting. I mean, you can get, you can get addicted in one try. Doesn't always happen, but it's possible. So, so that's, that's another aspect here of, of reducing demand is by going after uh, the, the pharmaceuticals and, and, and medical profession that, that over, over prescribes, uh, as well as finding replacement drugs for opioids, which I think is important in the, uh, the veterans hospitals. Uh, the education, as I mentioned, uh, the, uh, the non-incarceration by itself would probably result in fewer uh, people using uh, drugs in a way because I don't think people come out of jail uh, cured of their drug uh, habits. So, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a huge problem, and, but, but reducing demand is, is certainly critical. 
to, uh, oh. to what we do. Awesome. And with reducing demand, we will take a real uh, short break and we'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Attention, veterans. Are you ready to be your own boss? It's time to launch your own ideas into reality. Discover your clean writing style. Gear up with Marine Corps-trained motivator Christina Silva. Christina is a positive energy promoter with a special gift in connecting with innovators. Get the Military Heroes 411 and glean from experts every week by listening to The Christina Silva Show. We're educating our veterans live on The Christina Silva Show. Listen for new episodes every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania, and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to The Spotlight with the Ambassador and the Chief. If you have a question or a comment about the program, drop us a line via email to support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Again, that's support at dbaeecsolutions.com. Now back to The Spotlight. Hey, Jim, have you seen an increase or decrease in the flow of illegal drugs into the United States? Well, there are difficulties in uh, measuring that, but I, I can say that the the number of uh, overdoses has been for the past uh, three decades increased every year, although in, in 2018 it went down slightly to 67,000, but it's, it's, it's about uh, uh, 70,000 uh, deaths. It's uh, certainly fentanyl, the, the synthetic drugs, the fentanyl, which is an opioid, it's synthetic heroin, uh, methamphetamine, both of which come from um, uh, Mexico now and uh, are, are on the rise. Coca, there was a, a big surge in coca growth in Colombia starting uh, probably 2015, 2016, when the government of Colombia was negotiating with the FARC uh, which controls a lot of the area where the, the, the coca is grown 
the government, uh, what I'm reading, didn't want to upset the negotiations and therefore eased off, not only in terms of uh, eradication, but in terms of using herbicides uh, in, in the area. Uh, we did not use herbicides in uh, glyphosate. We did not use that in Peru. But, uh, but there is a glut in, in uh, Colombia. There was also a, a growth uh, in the amount of uh, hectares in Peru. And although there has been a, uh, <clears throat> some additional uh, uh, cooperation with Bolivia with uh, uh, Abel Morales out of the country for the past year, he is now back. So I, don't, I, I can't say what's going to happen there. <laughs> but with, with this increased amount, uh, one would expect that there is, in fact, uh, probably more uh, uh, illegal drugs coming into the country now than there was before. But I think you could be, you could argue that it ha- it's being fairly well managed and there are some good, uh, there are some good things uh, here on the horizon that are happening right now that might uh, affect that. For instance, uh, uh, fentanyl came directly from China to the United States by various means. This administration has negotiated uh, with the Chinese and they have taken on, whether they're going to do it or not, they've taken on to, re- to stop the movement of fentanyl directly to the United States and to investigate the companies that are making the precursor drugs that can be used uh, to, to manufacture the, the fentanyl. That's all going to Mexico. But it's a good thing that, it's, that apparently the... the, the uh, White House is saying that the uh, the fentanyl from China has has been reduced or even stopped. It's also true that the poppy growth in uh, Mexico is down by 27 percent uh, last year. Uh, we also because because of the agreement in Colombia with the FARC that opens the possibility that there will be uh, further cooperation on. Uh, uh, drug eradication, coca eradication down there. Um, so there, and I think there is an increased awareness in the United States. So uh, yes, there are, there, there probably is more coming in, more drugs coming in, but there are hopeful signs here that uh, uh, it's there, that it could be on the way to reduction. Now COVID, COVID is an interesting thing. It's uh, what's happening here is that the money laundering, the sale of drugs in the United States, the, the money that's taken for that, which is either, which is largely cash, although they're getting into crypto monetary things now, um, they, can't, they can't launder it because the, the traditional companies that they used to buy things are closed. Or are, there, or are being monitored, and there is a disruption in the manner in which uh, the money laundering used to take place. There's money piling up, and uh, the federal, our federal government is, is confiscating much more of that than, than ever before. Um, you also have the COVID situation in uh, Peru, where the price of coca leaf has plummeted by 70%. Oh, wow. The farmers can't sell their coke leaves because there are no buyers. There are no buyers because there are 
a lot of restrictions on air, sea, and the roads against COVID. And because and and that is is having a dramatic effect on on their ability to to sell their their product. Uh, on, on the on another side of this, uh, since I'm talking about COVID now, uh, I I'm concerned because uh, the people the the healthcare professionals who could assist with the counseling and the medication and the uh, and and other services for drug patients, uh, they're all committed, obviously, to dealing with this terrible uh, uh, COVID problem, and uh, they're, they're burning out. And I don't know that there's going to be enough resources to help uh, manage the, the, pro- the health problem uh, in the short term, maybe in the long term after we get the vaccine and all of that. But uh, Wow. Well, I, I think you, you, you highlight a good point about, you know, the 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 health worker that in the front line trying to work this out. So uh, it's incredible how uh, you got to just, you know, try to figure out what you could do. And now we see this. Um, what are the some of positive trends encountering the illegal narcotic trade that you see? Positive trends? I see uh, uh, a lot. I see the, uh, the DEA in particular and Treasury going after the kingpins. They are following the money. And following the money has resulted in a number of takedowns of the real narco traffickers, the real bad guys behind the scenes, the guys that don't take drugs, they just take your money. Um, so that's that's important. Um, obviously, El Chapo would be an example of that, but, but there are many, many others. Um, the DEA is also... Uh, fixed on uh, tracking the precursor chemicals. You can't make uh, cocaine. You can't you can't make fentanyl on that unless you've got a lot of uh, chemicals coming in that, that can be used. That tracking is is great. We are getting uh, a lot of cooperation, uh, and and I think uh, as diplomacy returns <laughs> to our country, we. <laughs> Uh, can can be working much more closely with the Mexicans and the Chinese in particular uh, about those those chemicals and, and about the uh, the fabrication of, of these drugs. Uh, another good sign I see was in like in Peru that that in very large area where two thirds of Peru's coca comes from the uh, southern part near near Bolivia. It's flown out to. Uh, it's flown to Bolivia, then from Bolivia goes to Brazil, to Europe, and to Venezuela, to the United States. Um, that area has never been open to us because of the Shining Path until 2019. Now we're allowed to go down there, so so there's going to be there's going to be some success down there, I hope. Uh, but okay. that that to me opens another problem area, and that is because of the COVID. Uh, restrictions on the roads and because of the remoteness of that area what the what the narco narco traffickers have to do is fly it out we used to have a robust in the 1990s a robust air denial program air bridge denial it was a shoot down policy and we had some success in bringing down something like 20 aircraft uh heading from uh Peru to Colombia uh, 
taking the the, the ba uh, coca base to be refined in in Colombia. It worked. We were able to shoot down. We didn't. The Peruvians were able to shoot down uh, aircraft because we had intelligence on the ground, DEA agents primarily. We had. They always flew at night, which is illegal over the Amazon. They uh, they would chat away on their HF radios that anybody could listen to. They were flying a, a, a known pattern from the Wyoga Valley. All of that changed. The bad guys know how to adjust. They started flying no radio during the day, treetop level, uh, and we didn't have as many intelligence officers in the field anymore. Wow. What happened, there was nobody was shot down. There were no shoot downs for uh, a couple of years. And then our radar picked up an airplane flying erratically, or so it, so it appeared. We sent out our uh, monitoring aircraft with a Peruvian on board. They were unable to follow precisely the, uh, the requirements of the President of the United States for, legal con for lethal use of force. Uh, the Peruvians called in a uh, fighter plane, a, a Peruvian general authorized it to shoot. And in short, the Peruvians killed a, an American missionary woman and her baby. And that ended the program. Wow. Uh, there was an effort by the president of the United States, George Bush at the time to restart it. I was one of those who was very much against it and spoke to very senior people in our government to try to stop it from being the military program that it was. Instead, they were going to give the airplanes to me, of all people, <laughs> to, to the, to the uh, uh, narcotics director for, for NAS. Uh, no way. And it has not restarted. But the existence of that program deters a, a lot of movement. And it would certainly deter movement in, in the southern part that has just opened because uh, the narcos don't want to take the risk of being shot down. But if they know that you're not in the air, hey, go ahead. Peruvians have restarted the program. We are not part of it. Okay. That's, that's the best, uh, best solution as far as, as I can see. Harry, can you take us out? We're about to finish. Hey, Jim, thank you so much for being our guest. We wish you and your family a wonderful holiday season here and in the Philippines, Maligayang Pasco, Daniel Lahat. And um, we have learned so much about your effort. And we thank you for your service in trying to counter drugs. Thank, thank you. you, Jim. Thank you. I appreciate it. And that was the spotlight with the ambassador and the chief. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into the spotlight with the ambassador and the chief be sure to join chief alex morales and ambassador harry thomas again next wednesday at 10 a.m pacific time and 1 p.m eastern time on the voice america variety channel we'll talk again next week